Alright, alright. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and we here are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Thank you so very, very much for listening. I deeply appreciate it. Alright, what have we got tonight? I'm sorry if I sound a little tired. I am tired. Um, seasonal change, and and I have still not fully fixed my sleep schedule from that. Last week, I'm getting better, but it takes 48 hours to wreck a sleep schedule, and it takes like two and a half or three weeks to put it back together. Oh, it's always fun. So, I very recently got done with um, some more wrestling coverage, uh, which just ran over the time that I was going to, that I normally record the show, and... And I had stuff come up, so I'm doing this later than usual. In fact, it just clicked over midnight my time. Hooray! Alright, so if... Long story short there. If I'm a little tired, or if I sound a little different, blame sleep deprivation and... How late I wound up doing this. Um, sorry. (laughs) Nothing else for it. Uh, To everyone here in the States, happy Labor Day. Uh, To everyone else in the world, it's just a holiday here in the United States. It celebrates labor. In general, a little bit those serving you... The way it was explained to me, there's three sort of uh, military holidays here in the United States. There's Memorial Day for the deceased vet... For people who fought in the military and are no longer with us. There's Veterans Day for those who have served. And Labor Day partially commemorates those who do serve currently. Um, some of it also, again, for labor is just like, yay, labor in general, because it's, you know, the backbone of more or less civilizations, our ability to put forth labor in a guided specific process. That's uh, a little bit too high order thinking for this, (laughs) but anyway. So happy Labor Day to all those for whom it applies. If you're listening to this too far after the fact, then, you know, it clearly doesn't matter. All right, on the agenda this evening, yesterday, technically two days ago, I'm just going to go with yesterday and y'all just going to work with me. The sun hasn't come up, I refuse to acknowledge the day has changed. We had UFC back in Paris, UFC on ESPN plus 48, slash UFC Paris. Uh, There was that. So we will talk about that. And what was the other thing? Um, we will be previewing UFC 296, which is not a very strong card. I call it like I see it. I hope that's one of the things you appreciate about me. And yeah, I it's not a strong pay-per-view card. That's kind of all there is to it. Then we've got a handful of news items to touch on. So we'll do that. Alright, you guys already know how long this is going to take. You get to see the timestamp. I have to do it live. So, before we get going, anything you can do to interact with the product, please like, comment, subscribe. Uh, Star rating, written review, whatever's applicable to your podcast platform of choice is greatly appreciated. Sharing on your social media platform of choice or with people in your real life that you think would be interested in the show. uh, Let them know. Always appreciate anything and everything you guys can do for us. Uh, yeah, I I would still kind of do this because I just enjoy it, even if there wasn't. I mean, I don't have a big audience. I'm not. I know more or less my numbers. I'm eternally grateful that there's anyone that listens to me rambling. 
But I just, eh, I get a kick out of this. So I'm glad there's some, there's people out there listening. So thank you. Uh, I appreciate you guys. I'm going to assume mostly guys. MMA is a mostly male demographic, and the more niche you get, and my stuff is pretty niche in that respect. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna guess, but if there are any ladies out there listening, uh, I'm not trying to dismiss you. Just play on the odds. All right. Let's move on, shall we? Let's get this party started. UFC on ESPN Plus 84, UFC Paris. Um, You know what? It wasn't a terribly strong card on pay-per-view, but if you'd asked me, I think I actually had a pretty good record. Um, if In terms of my picks from last week, from this event, actually. I Was I, I... No, I missed that one. I wasn't perfect. But I think I did quite well, actually. Um, more right than wrong, which I'll take these days. Because a la- couple of weeks, it's been rough. Uh, your main event wound up being pretty uncompetitive. Uh, Cyril Gaon defeats Sergei Spivak via TKO. Punches to the body and head, 344 of the second round. Never all that close. So, here's the thing about this fight. This fight was largely there to pose the que- to pose a few questions to Gaon in the wake of the bad loss to John Jones. It was a chance for Spivak to step up. And it was a chance for Gon to answer questions about particularly his wrestling. Look, dude got out-wrestled by Francis Ngannou. Then John, he made a very poor decision in the opening seconds of the John Jones fight. And John, being John, never let him recover from it. So, Spivak's a fairly active takedown artist. Fairly accurate takedown artist as well. And that was a question that Gon had to answer. Now... To the extent that we got answers, they were pretty stunningly in Gon's favor. I still have a couple of questions, but let me run through a little bit why. So Gon comes out, he's bouncing, he does the stance switching thing. He opened orthodox, he does more work southpaw in general, but he opened orthodox here. Then went southpaw and seemed to prefer what he was seeing out of that stance, so he stayed there. Great job at distance, you know, landing some jabs. Leg kicks, body kicks, his usual stuff. Spivak didn't have much of an answer. Second round, more of the same. He's turned up, um, gone. He turned up the body work in this fight, and that really paid dividends in the second round. Spivak visibly slowed. Backed into the fence, just killed him to the body. Eventually flurried enough, got the stoppage. So... Uh, in that respect, good performance from Gon. Um, Gon is... <laughs> he doesn't have a dial between his two extremes, I think. I'm just going to talk about his striking for a second. When he's at distance and doing his thing, he is surgical. He is great about finding openings. He's great about... He's got great patience. He pokes, he prods, he hurts... But he doesn't really overcommit that much. He does on occasion, but again, not much. He's mostly defensively responsible. Excellent footwork. I'm going to touch on his footwork again in a minute. But, again, surgical. He, out of the southpaw stance, he lands this really nice, like, my discipline calls it an inverted round. Roundhouse kick. So, here's the thing. Let me try to briefly describe this. 
So normally a lead leg roundhouse kick, you you want to raise again. You raise the leg. You can argue whether or not you, it should come like at an upward trajectory, so be inside upward, upward, and then going towards your center center line, or more horizontal. That's it's kind of a style thing. Like, what are you trying to do? There's value to both ways. But that's your, your traditional lead leg roundhouse kick. The inverted roundhouse is kind of the reverse. Inverted. So instead of raising and kind of um, closing your hips towards your opponent, especially if you're open, you open them. You still bring the knee up, but you point it so that your foot comes, again, instead of inside up, so outside toward the center line, upward trajectory, you go outside up. And so again, it's, if you're, you know, if we're thinking about southpaw, so we're using the right leg, it would come up, you know, starting a little bit more like the bottom left of the theoretical box and then going diagonal upwards to the right. Yeah, inside up, or uh, sorry, outside up, away from the center, away from your center mass. If I'm, some of these terms that I use, again, there's a lot... A lot of people get bogged down in weird terminology in the martial arts community. I describe, I don't assume anyone uses my same vernacular until I've established what's going on, because I don't, I don't need someone out there yelling at their screen that, no, it's called X. When you have a different, when I call it Y, and you have a different, you have something else that's called Y, and then there's confusion, so I do a little bit of explaining to try and smooth that out. But that's what that is. And you might wonder, like, why would you ever use this kick? I, when I was taught it, I thought it was stupid. I learned it because it was required of me. And if you're doing, so the question, like, why would you do it? It has a few different uses, believe it or not. One, if you're doing point sparring, um, it scores. It, it's actually a pretty sneaky kick in that respect. It'll score. Especially if you're doing a, a rule set that allows groin strikes. And certain... Um, especially if you do... Again, this is like point break, point break. The WKF doesn't allow groin strikes, but different ones do. Kind of experiment with their legality. Um, and we'll get into... There was some controversy around a groin strike earlier in this card, and we'll get to it when we get to it, but... You can actually hit the groin pretty easily using this kick, especially if you're open stance. So, it can if you just need to get your weapon to the target and then you get a break or you just get a point cleanly for that connection, it has value there. I'm sure the Taekwondo guys have a different word for it, but because I've seen some of them use it, if you watch, you know, um, Taekwondo, I like Olympic style Taekwondo, that kick gets thrown out there on occasion. Uh, neither here nor there. Why would you do it in full contact, knockout style competition? Um, some of it has, well, the relevant thing is like, why this instead of a front kick? Because you're doing kind of the same thing. There's a few things. Some of it has to do with your opponent's guard. I'm not saying blocking a front kick is easier. I am saying that your guard position can do some dis can do some work with respect to stifling front kicks. Um, the other thing that can work is your stance. Muay Thai guys throw a lot of front kicks because their stances are fairly square. 
the more square the other guy is, the easier it is to land front kicks. The more bladed you are, believe it or not, the more useful the inverted roundhouse becomes because you can get kind of around that lead hand if it's low, especially if it's low um, and the elbow's pointed straight down. You can get around that guard and dig your toes with the ball of your foot into the body. And Gon uses this kick a lot. Because he, he probes with it. He pokes with it. He's like, all right, I can't hit you with anything too powerful. I'm going to stab you in the belly. Just bleep. And it sucks. It really sucks. But he does it a lot, and people don't like it. And his uh, Spivak didn't like it. Derek Lewis didn't like it. Like, and it's harder to block, because if you try to adjust your stance to deal with it, you open up other things. Frequently leg kicks, actually. Because of how you, again, you square up a little bit, you uh, shift your footwork to try and negate that angle, or you switch your guard position, um, it, just, it opens up other things. He uses it to probe, to annoy, to harass, to deplete the old stamina bar. And if he can hurt you with it, he absolutely will. <laughs> uh, so he was poking with that a fair bit, and that did a good chunk of work for him here. Um, but at distance, again, it's part of his surgical mindset. He finds small openings, and he has different tools depending on which opening he wants to poke at. And he will just do that until you start falling apart. But once Cyril Gon thinks you're hurt, he doesn't... That same, like, surgical precision and sort of real technical acumen... He basically picks it up and throws it out the window and just goes caveman on you. I mean, he did it to... It's very evident here. Also very evident in the tie to Ivasa fight. Rewatch that one. When he's at distance and just making Tuivasa's life miserable. Surgical, technical. Once things get hairy and okay, we're doing this. Total caveman. Out the window. My man is out there throwing just... Somebody made a joke like that. Uh, one of the punches he landed near the end of the fight. He basically loaded up a falcon punch from Super Smash Brothers. Like, backs him against the fence, fakes the punch, loads it so he can kind of see how Spivak blocks, and then right around the guard, right into the ear, just boom! Staggers him along the fence line. And that's kind of... That's about as close as he get he got to marrying that, because after that, it's just... It's swinging... It's back fist, it's standing hammer fist, it's just, again, caveman stuff. I credit him for having that part of his game. Some people don't have that. Uh, some people have only that. But when he thinks you're hurt and he goes for it, he just, all right, all my beautiful technique, out the window, and Donkey Kong. Uh, so what, did I want, what I wanted to say about this... I still have some questions around Gon and his wrestling, because he had the first order, basically, of takedown defense so dialed in, there was only one instance when he had to deal with the next order of it. So, think about takedown defense a little bit like, again, layers, orders. You do different things at different times, and once they penetrate a certain line of defense, you have to go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, etc. Um, near the end of this, like, one of the last things you want to have to do is sprawl. That should be the... There's too many people who, especially in MMA, this is truer years ago than it is now, 
their default was sprawl. That will get you in trouble if you don't do some of the other stuff before it. You dig for underhooks first. You down block first. Like, there's a bunch of other stuff you have to do before you worry about getting your hips back, much less sprawling all the way to the mat. And the very first order of takedown defense, the best takedown defense, is good footwork. Some of this was highlighted here because Spivak does not have very good footwork. But Gons was on point. He was too far away for Spivak to really get a hold of him. Anytime they got close, he was either really disengaging or he'd dart out, re-angle, get back to work. Uh, really good footwork here in that respect. The one time Spivak kind of tied up, he sort of got towards a single leg and got... Normally you don't have to sprawl away from the single leg like this, but... I mean, one, it worked... Two, the reasons it worked are probably why Gon decided to sprawl to begin with, so I'm going to leave that one alone a little bit. I still have some questions about how he does, you know, in clinches, in more prolonged grappling exchanges. Um, there's some specific technique I'd like to see out of him, but uh, I can't fault him for this one, man. Like, he doesn't know, he should not decide, I'll let this dangerous takedown artist get a hold of me just so I can practice some of my stuff. No, that's what the gym's for. You're out here, if your footwork's good enough to stop the other guy from ever getting close enough to even think about taking you down, that's what you do. So, that's what he did. After the fight, um, they were hinting at the the commentary, the interview and when I tried to do the, so what about Tom Aspinall thing? I'd be down for that fight. Um, here's the thing about heavyweight. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, I had this listed as another news item, but let me use it here because we're going to talk. If we're going to talk about the future here, let me talk about this here a little bit. So there's an official backup in place now for John Jones versus uh, Stipe Miocic, and it is Sergey Pavlovich, who is probably the most deserving guy who should have been fighting for the belt, but John doesn't want to fight necessarily the most deserving guy. He wants to fight the highest profile who will add to his legacy. That is easily Stipe Miocic. And here's the funny thing about that. So John's turned down short notice opponent changes before. And for the record, I'm not here to kill him for that at all. Like You're not beholden to anyone with respect to, look, if a fight falls out, you don't owe anyone anything after that point. You know, the UFC, you know, this was the Chael Sonnen thing, where on a week's notice, Dan Henderson was like, yeah, by the way, you know, my I got l torn ligaments in my knee and I can't actually fight. And the UFC came to John and said, so how about Chael Sonnen? And John said, no. <laughs> Now, we can all, Dana got hot about that, and a lot of people kind of went, why no? Like, Chael is just a worse version of Dan Henderson. He's, you know, wrestler, different style of wrestling, but doesn't have near the punching power. Like, what's going on there? And as a uh, purely on the outside kind of looking in, 
that makes sense. But if you're the one risking your physical well-being, your title, your money, your yada yada, it's different. Especially because, you know, Chael was kind of a training partner of Henderson, and you know, he, Chael might have been really in shape and really ready for that fight and was very different than, and again, in some respects, was different than Henderson. So I, I don't begrudge John saying no. And Dana White doing the, you know, this is the event Greg Jackson killed. No, buddy, you killed that because you didn't have a strong enough card to support that pay-per-view absent the title fight. That's not on anyone other than you and the matchmakers and whatnot. But So John's turned down short-notice opponents, and if something happens to Stipe, it wouldn't shock me if he says no to Pavlovich because Pavlovich is not at all Stipe Miocic. <laughs> Very different fighters. Um, there's a lot of specific stuff you would do for one that you would not do for the other. And you know what? Wouldn't be surprised if the uh, if the reverse was true as well. If something happened to John and Stipe was like, no, I'm only fighting for the belt. And Stipe, and again, Sergei Pavlovich, definitively not John Jones. Um, crazy long arms like John. Uh, shorter than John by like half an inch, I think, but very long arms, uh, crazy frame on Pavlovich, but again, markedly different fighters. You are not worried about anywhere near the same things with Pavlovich as you are with John. So there's a decent chance that no matter if something happens to either John or Miocic, that Pavlovich is still just left kind of like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> not fighting. But the lo- the point here is like at the top of, he- of heavyweight, that needs to be resolved. We need to see what happens between John and Stipe. We need to see what happens if John wins. He might retire. That's kind of been intimated. Uh, he might even have said it. And again, how much credence you want to give this, I leave up to you. But there have been rumors for a while that he would retire. And how could you do much better? I've said this before as well. Like, he's fighting in his home state. Not his home city, but he's from a small city in more like upstate New York. And short of going to Buffalo, see if he's done once, I think. Or, you know, Albany, and they're not taking a pay-per-view to Albany. Short of something like that, fighting in New York at Madison Square Garden is the closest he's going to get to a home game. He's fighting the most successful UFC heavyweight champion of all time. He's... Now one belts in two weight classes. He's got the longest, you get the stupidly long undefeated streak. He's only got that one loss on his record. That's a weird, you know, DQ loss. If he beats Miocic, like, that's your storybook retirement. Hometown, close enough, or, you know, as close as you're going to get. Taking out the UFC heavyweight, that's the be- the most successful UFC heavyweight Defending a title in a second weight class. What more do you have to accomplish? And who at heavyweight is going to... Unless Francis Ngannou walks through the door or the UFC... Another thing about this. There's absolutely nothing stopping the UFC from making a deal for John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. You want to know the only thing stopping them from doing it? The UFC's refusal to co-promote. That's it. 
the PFL airs on ESPN. Part of the reason you have these hurdles in boxing is different groups have deals with different broadcasters. You got some on Showtime, you got some on DAZN, you've got some on. Uh, there's the other pay-per-view one. There's the there's the one that's on ESPN. There's just again there's these different cable providers or again broadcast partners, and that's the hurdle is trying to figure out, okay, I'm signed with, let's, I'm just going to say Showtime and ESPN for the sake of argument here. If you got a Showtime fighter and an ESPN fighter, and they want to fight, how do we, who broadcasts it? If it's pay-per-view, which one carries it? Do they both carry it? Who gets what split of which platform? It, it's, it's just a headache. There's no headache here. If the UFC, there is not one single hurdle to John Jones versus Francis Ngannou right now, apart from the UFC's uh, operating procedures. There's no, there's no other, pro- this is only a, U- the UFC just has to say yes. Then Francis and John would have to say yes, but the law, sorry, the point here is, if John beats Miocic, and Ganu's kind of the only thing out there that's interesting, is Pavlovich the next deserving contender? Yes. Would Aspinall, dude, if Tom Aspinall gets by Cyril gone, is Tom Aspinall a very interesting title challenger? Yes. If you're John Jones, dude, John has already beaten, like, three generations of talent. His rise up to the belt, he smashed, like, the first tough generation. Then he beat his contemporaries. Then he beat the new wave of guys, some of them closer than others, I don't dispute that. Then he moved up in weight and beat another a newer guy, by the way, gone newer generation of fighter to the UFC. Is he is he really going to stick around again like take on another a whole other generation of fighters at heavyweight that doesn't meaningfully add anything that people aren't all that interested in when he's, you know, getting up there in age and has been doing this forever. You, you're at the point with John's career where you have to really have something to entice him, and Pavlovich doesn't. So unless the UFC throws a boatload of money at him, and they won't because they're the UFC, and they won't pay, and they keep trying to, you know, keep athlete compensation less than 20%, and I believe they're 15, maybe even lower than that at the moment... So, even if they do add a little more money, it's not going to be meaningful in the, in the grand scheme of things. This is why they're being sued. Uh, it's just, it's hard. Like, does having Sergei Pavlovich on his resume meaningfully add anything to it? I don't know. Maybe Pavlovich goes on a run. Maybe, like, he loses to John. John then retires. Then Pavlovich goes on this run and becomes, you know, a great UFC heavyweight champion. And in hindsight, maybe. But, you know, now... The risk to reward is probably not really worth it. So if John retires as champion, the belt gets vacated. Then you got Pavlovich sitting there, and you've also got Gone and Aspinall who are in that same vicinity, and you got to figure that out. So we might get Aspinall and Gone. It's a great fight. I wouldn't object to it. Aspinall, fast hands, good power, good wrestling, good grappling. 
I might favor Aspinall in that fight, to be perfectly honest. But you know, Gon's footwork, movement, ability to fight for five rounds. We know Gon can fight the distance. He's been five rounds multiple times. He's got power, slick footwork. Like, that's a good matchup. You're going to throw a title... Would you throw the title on that fight and say, Pavlovich, fine, you've just got next? Is somebody else coming up that you might have to worry about? I don't think so, but, you know, who knows? So, the future's very uncertain about what it looks like in particular at this division. For Spivak, this was a step up in class. He fell short. It happens, but he had a good run recently. I mean, his only losses... In, he doesn't have that many losses in the UFC. He lost to Walt Harris. Um, that was rough. He choked out Taitui Vasa. He lost to Marcin Tabora. That would that fight would not go that way again if they had a rematch. Um, I think he's improved pretty dramatically since then. Then he won three in a row. Lost to Tom Aspinall. No shame. Won three in a row again. All three of these were finishes. Lower level, you know, Greg Hardy, Augusto Sakai. The Lewis win was pretty big. He beat Derek Lewis. Took another step up. Fell short again, but how old is he? He's only 28. Uh, he's already had 20 fights, though. And, jeez, he's only been in the UFC four years. Well, four and a half at this point, but... Okay, so... Assuming he's not carrying a massive injury load, he's got plenty of time to sort this stuff out. Heavyweight can be a meat grinder, but if you're smart, if you're as young as he is, some guys at heavyweight, you know, you don't win the belt, you don't win the belt for like another five or six years from where he is right now. Uh, he doesn't need to get crazy about that. He's got time to fix this stuff. He took a step up, learned some lessons, hopefully, and I think he's still got a decent future. I mean, we don't need to. We don't need to throw him out with the bathwater yet. He's still got plenty of time to figure stuff out. And that was your main event. Uh, let's see, moving on. Co-main event, Manon Fior defeated Rosnama Yunus for unanimous decision. 229-28 and a 30-27. Not sure on the 30-27. I don't hate it, but I'm not, I don't agree with it. Um, Rose struggled here, man. Now, she broke one of her fingers in the first round... Um, which I'm sure wasn't great, but two things uh, stuck out to me the more this fight went on. Um, well, three things. First, Rose is a more average-sized flyweight, where she was a pretty lanky, big strawweight. I think a lot of her game, and a lot of her kind of... Not just her game and, like, the general tactics, but in terms of, like, her personal application was built on some physical advantages that she's used to having that she didn't have here. In terms of, like, the dimensions of fighting. She's always struggled with people who could out-physical her. That's where Karolina Kovalkiewicz turned the tide on her, got into the clinch, out-muscled her, tore her up to the body with knees. Because Rose had a great first round of that fight, and then it kind of, she got winded to the body... Couldn't quite keep up with the physicality of Carolina, dropped off. How did Jessica Andrade beat her the first time? Took kind of a beating, but then made it physical, made it ugly, and out-muscled her and then slammed her on her head. 
where did Zhang, where did Willie Zhang give her problems? When it was physical. Because Zhang is strong as an ox. And Manon Fior is just kind of a hoss. <laughs> Um, Fiora did well enough at distance. Uh, different weapon choices from her. Normally she's a lot more sidekick heavy, but I think she was, she, Rose had a good read on that. The couple of times she threw it, Rose countered her, so she stopped doing it. More jabbing, a little bit more angling. I was surprised Fiora didn't go more to the clinch. There was a clinch sequence in the first round, first or second? It's either late first or early second. Forgive me for not remembering off the top of my head. Um, I want to say first, actually, now the more that I think about it. Rose goes for a takedown. Fjord defends, gets her on the fence, uh, gets superior head position, and lands a couple of hard knees to the body that Rose visibly reacts to before pulling away. Rose has always been a touch soft to the body, um, especially in close where she can be out-muscled. Fjord not going back to that was, uh, I don't know. It was a decision. I mean, obviously she still won the fight, so I'm not saying it was a giant error. It just, I wonder if she didn't notice how much that got to Rose, but because, it, again, it did. It definitely got to her. Uh, third round you could maybe, I gave to Nami Yunus. That's the one that I think most people did, or the other two judges. I'm not going to look it up. I don't care that much. Um... But one, too little, too late. Two, even that round was not some blowout round for Nama Yunus. Uh, so the question becomes at this point, Aaron Blanchfield or Manon Fjord next for the title? The answer to that is going to depend on what happens specifically between Grasa and Shevchenko. If Valentino wins... They might try for a trilogy between those two because the UFC likes that. Some of this will be pursuant to how, theoretically, Valentina wins, but we'll see. Dude, if they have another... Their first fight, it's not like all-time great barn burners, but it's a pretty good fight. Uh, then there's, you know, the finish. If we get another pretty good fight, this, this time with Valentina winning... They might go for a third one. If we get if Valentina like dominates, they probably won't. But if it's competitive and entertaining, and just Shevchenko happens to come out on top, yeah, they might. If they go for a trilogy between Grasso and Shevchenko, Blanchfield and Fiora are going to have to fight each other. If they don't, I'm higher on Aaron Blanchfield as a general rule. However, Fior has the better resume right now. Uh, and I'm, this is not me trying to knock Erin Blanchfield. I think she's going to be the champion of this weight class. But if you're asking me who deserves it more right now, it's not that Blanchfield has a bad resume, but... Her best performance is the win over Jessica Andrade, which was a late-notice replacement and not really Andrade's natural weight class. Still an impressive performance, not downgrading, I'm just noting. And the win over Tyla Santos that she just got was hard-fought, and... Uh, 
it might have cooled her momentum a little bit despite winning based on how that fight played out. Fior has now beaten... Uh, she's un, well, she's undefeated in the UFC, and... I mean, beating Chukagian and then beating Namayunas... Uh, dude, her wins in the UFC go as follows. Victoria Leonardo, okay, not, not a big deal. Tabitha Ricci. Myra Buena Silva, who is, you know, knocking on the door of a title shot up a weight class. Jennifer Maya, former title challenger. Caitlin Chukagian, the without ever winning the belt, kind of the Rich Franklin position of that division, just constantly stopping other challengers. And now Rose Namajunas. I think Fjord's resume in this moment is better. Who do I... Th- she might even win. Wouldn't necessarily favor her, but she might. She's good. Who do I think long-term is going to be the champion and potentially face the division? Y- yeah, Aaron Blanchfield. She's young, and she's really good. But right now, who do I think deserves it more? I would actually lean towards Fior, personally. So that's kind of where that is. I don't know what's next for Rose. She might still be able to make a run at flyweight, but this is the other thing about Rose that, Rose that stuck out to me here. So, again, one, her size for the division is very average. Two, her skill set is kind of predicated on some physical advantages that she doesn't seem to have here. Three, I believe she left Trevor Whitman's camp. And... Uh, I'm gonna... I'm gonna try not to kill Pat Berry here. But between rounds one and two, one, he kind of tried to keep Rose focused after she said, you know, I broke my finger, which she did. She's posted the video of it. Her right her right pinky is either broken or dislocated at the, um, I forget if they count from the knuckles out or from the, fing- from the fingertip in. Um, but not the, it's not the joint right by your nail, but the next one up. It's either, it's broken or dislocated right around there. And he said, nah, don't worry about it. Then he said, so, your leg kicks are looking good, which they kind of were, but you don't need them. So he literally said, stop doing the thing that's working. <laughs> I, I try not to kill corners too much, mostly because athlete communication is very personal. You're trying to convey to them something in a short amount of time that can occasionally be very complex, be a very complex and complicated. So there's frequently a lot of shorthand that goes on there. This doesn't mean I never kill corners for stuff, but I try not to too much if I can kind of try to intuit what's going on there. Uh, in this instance, I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> So, between all of that, I don't know what Rose's future at 125 might be. She's probably closer to the end of her career than not. Um, She's just accomplished a whole lot. She's kind of been doing this for a fair bit. Uh, I mean, she doesn't have the most fights in the world, but when you look at, you know, she's taken time off at various times, and I don't blame her for it. But, again, she's kind of been doing this for a while. And she's might be a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place here. 
on her best night, like the very best version of Rose Namajunas is probably is probably the best female fighter ever. The best version of her. She's got power. She's got footwork. She's got good technical application. Good distance reading. Good grappling. She added some pretty decent wrestling. I, I mean this. Skill for skill. The best version of Rose is, is I think, probably the best female fighter ever. Yeah, I know some were bigger. Like, would she ever beat, you know, Amanda Nunes? No, Nunes is much larger. If they were in the mythical world of, well, let's put them at the same size, okay. Skill for skill, they're the same size. Yeah, Rose is better. The Again, the best version of Rose is better. But she's also the kind of fighter who loses to someone who's just taller, stronger, has a good one too, and doesn't, gets sucked into the weirdness or goes out there and does nothing for 25 minutes against Carlos Esparza. It's very up and down. I, w- I wouldn't be opposed to her trying flyweight again, maybe with a matchup that's not as difficult because she got thrown right into the deep end there. Manon Fior is very good. But I don't know exactly what the future holds for her. We'll have to wait and see. It wouldn't shock me if, you know, 18 months from now, she announces, yeah, I retired out of the blue. We just don't hear from her again after this, and this winds up being her last fight. That, That's entirely possible. Uh, next up, lightweight Benoit Saint-Denis and Thiago Moises. Benoit Saint-Denis wins via TKO, just punches. 444 of the second round. This was your fight of the night. Deserved. Great fight here for as long as it lasted. Um... BSD is just a dog when he wants to be. He got in Moises' face and just would not give him space to breathe. Landed punches, landed some pretty good kicks. Moises would throw back. There was some good scr- There was some phenomenal scrambling when these two hit the mat. Um, the pressure and damage accumulated on Moises, and then eventually Sandini gets to uh, the ride position basically and just is able to pound him out. Uh, dude, Sandini's only loss as a professional was up at uh, welterweight, short notice against uh, Elias Lasquito Santos. He's um, yeah, he's never lost in this weight class. He never lost at welterweight when he fought at that outside of the UFC. I'm not saying he's perfect, but he's good. I saw the idea floated after this about him and Paddy Pimblett. I'm down. I'm down for that. Um, I think he'd do bad things to Patty, but he's also... Pimblet's hype does not match his ability. I think we can all... Can we all at least acknowledge that? I'm not here to hate on the guy, okay? I'm really not. I'm just saying the hype doesn't match the ability. That's not saying there's no ability, but... He's talked himself up, and people have bought into it. And fair play, buy into what you want to buy into. Sometimes that pans out. I tend to think Saint-Denis would probably hurt him. But you can't give him spoon-fed matches forever. I mean, you tried one of those with Jared Gordon, and he still should have lost that one. 
I'd be down for that fight. I and look, if Patty can get by Sandini, that's a that's a very validating win if you know what you're talking about. The problem is Patty's got a decent pro he's got a decent enough profile that giving him someone without a at least decent again, kind of a decent bit of name value is gonna be a tough sell to him. Especially if there's not a lot of upside and Sandini it validates him to the hardcores. Um, it might do a lot of damage to him, you know, for everyone else. So I don't know. I'd, that's a fight that I would be interested in seeing. And I think it makes sense for both guys in some respects, but who knows? Pamblet's still recovering from injury or whatnot. So, you know, who knows? Uh, featherweight William Gomez defeated Giannis uh, Gamori via body kick, uh, 220 of the third. Um, this was our weird low blow slash not low blow thing. Okay. Um, not a very active fight, but Gomez turned it up a little bit. Gomez was getting the better of this fight all the way through. Not by huge margins, but by enough. Third round, he fires a body kick. And this is one of the things about MMA that I really wish we figured we could figure out. Because um, commentary seems to always do the, well, the point of impact after it, gla- after it clearly glances off the cup. There might have been one of the... There was some other fight where that came up. It might have been this one. It might have been one of the others. Forgive me. There were some low blows last night. This card is all I'm saying. Um, but if it makes contact with the cup, it's a low blow. This isn't that hard. But every time you got Joe Rogan or Michael Bisbing or Daniel Cormier or whoever going, oh, the point of impact there looked good after, again, after the kick bounces off the cup or glances, you can't touch it. You can't hit the cup. Doesn't matter where the actual point of impact is. If you glance off it or you hit it, it's a foul. This isn't complicated. We make it complicated because we're stupid. One of the problems with this in MMA is you don't have... It's not like you can't hit below or above a certain threshold. The rule is kind of don't hit the groin. But you can hit the hip. I talked about this um, when we discussed the boxing low blows last week. And it it changes the area a little bit. It might be easier if we had a rule about you can't hit below, establish a belt line, can't hit below the belt line, and you can't hit above a particular line on the thigh. That might make this easier. As it stands, it's kind of like, well, if you were wearing just a jock strap, you can't hit what's covered. But you can dig into the side of the hip, dig in just above it. That's all fine. Dig in the inside of the thigh. And it, and it just leads to these stupid things. So I feel bad for Gamori because I think this was technically a low blow. The problem is he got kicked. And he thought it was a low blow. I see his point for the re- after looking at replay and whatnot. I see his point. He reacts badly. Gomez goes to stop, like okay, I guess I kicked him low. And the referee says he gets where both fighters can see him and says no fight. 
whether that ruling is bad or not, okay, the, the, separate that for, separate the accuracy of the referee for just a second. If you get poked in the eye, and the referee says, no, that was fair, fight on. If you don't want the fight to be stopped, you have to fight on. If you get kicked low and the referee says, no, that was fair, one, maybe it is, maybe you're feeling it wrong. That happens, especially if you were fouled earlier. Sometimes you get hit hard in the groin once or once. Blows in that vicinity feel like repeated low blows, even if they aren't. So maybe you're feeling wrong. Got fighters have complained about eye pokes that were perfectly fair punches, vice versa. You have to react to what the referee says in real time. If you're Gamori, referee said, fight. You turned away from Gomez and walked away. He got back at you and said, you know, you got to fight. You kept walking. He waved it off. You turned your back on the your opponent and literally walked away. Not trying to reposition, just walking away. And yeah, the ref's going to wave that off. He just, any ref would. And look, I wish there was a better appeals process. Let me say that straight up. The fact that the appeals process in MMA is as terrible as it is, is nothing but uh, pathetic, atrophied government bureaucracy protecting itself. That's all it is. And I'm happy to call it as such. I wish there was a better appeals process for fights like this in moments like this. I really do. And hopefully we get there. I would like to see that. But you have to react to what the referee does. If the ref gets it wrong and you got kicked low and you've got to fight on, you got to fight on. And if you don't, it's going to get waved off. If you stop fighting, the referee stops the fight. Period. So I wish there was better recourse for him because I do think the ref got this one wrong. But... If you react that way in a fight, this is what happens. Gomez was winning the fight anyway, so fair play to him. Uh, Let's see, next, featherweight, uh, Morgan Chaudier and Manolo Zicchini. Zicchini, excuse me. Um, Yeah, Chaudier's been kind of awesome for a while. Uh, he wins here via body kick, TKO, and punches. 351 of the first. Sick body work from Chardier. He lands a left body kick as uh, Zucchini, uh, Zucchini is circling along the fence. Hurts him. Sees that it hurts him. Goes back to it. Resets. Hits a nasty front kick to the liver that kind of locks uh, Zucchini up. Doubles him over. Then as he's backing away, Chardier just punts him under the guard into the ribs again. Beautifully placed kick. Folds him up. Uh, nice debut from Chardier. Actually do want to see more of Zucchini. Um, I'm talking a lot about the finish there, but he didn't look half bad. Uh, so, but heck of a win for Chardier. France had a pretty good night overall. Um, they had a cup. Dude, who lost for them? So Gamori and Gomez was Fran- France against France, so one of the Frenchmen was going to lose there. Um, yeah, Zara Fain, I think, was the only other one. In terms of the French 
uh, the French Nationals, who won or lost. Yeah, France had a good night. Oh, I meant to say this about uh, Cyril Gaon. I saw this on Twitter, and it's true. Gaon being a heavyweight, a kind of tactical fighter, him being a heavyweight, French, and popular, is the... He exists at the smallest of Venn diagrams. <laughs> like that, the where those three points overlap is very small, and it's just him. I think it, it's a little bit almost unnatural that someone with those three qualities is popular exists at the same time. But there he is, pr- living proof. Uh, so that was the main card on the prelims. Taylor Lapalus defeated. Uh, Callan Lochran, the unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Lapalus wins 1-3. Lochran talked a lot of crap, pissed off the crowd. Lost the first round, won the second because he got a couple of takedowns, but Lapalus just came on stronger in the third, didn't get taken down again, just did more work. Good return for Lapalus, who was in the UFC previously. Um, Angelosa and Reese McKee. Uh, Losa wins the unanimous decision. 130-27. Don't agree with that. And then 229-28. So Losa comes out hot. Batters McKee. Can't get, can't put him away. Resets. Um, batters him again in the second. Third round is battering him again. Gets slipped up near the fence kind of towards the end. Gets caught. And McKee, you think there's a half chance he's going to pull off a miracle comeback. It's not like he was completely out of the first two rounds, but he was on the wrong end of most of it. Um, was there a round you could have made a 10-8 for? I think there was one of them you might have could made a case. Um, maybe you could have made a case for, but uh, neither here nor there in that respect. Uh, yeah, Luce had a pretty bad cut, actually. Um, at, in the third round, McKee caught him with an elbow. It opened up, it was under the eye, it was kind of on the outside of the orbital or the cheekbone on his left side. I bring it up only because it was deep. Because you could see it when he was doing his post-fight interview. Um, yeah, there's there's like surface cuts where you see you know just one layer of like subdermis uh, or you know, muscle. Then there's the ones where you can see several. You could see several. That was actually a pretty deep cut. It wasn't bad, I don't think it would have stopped the fight necessarily, but... It was a pretty good cut. <laughs> uh, Losa's turned in some decent work here. Strong guy, good power, pretty good shot selection, hand speed. He faded a little bit, which is kind of a problem, but there's not too many guys who are going to take the kind of beating that Reese McKee did and still keep coming the way he was. So, I mean, I think in his last fight, not the fight with uh, Kamzat Shamayev, who just kind of bulldozed him, but the one after that, uh, I want to say it was Michael Bisping on commentary who called him the Irish zombie because he got pounded on and just kind of kept standing up and walking back and waiting forward at reattacking and same kind of thing here. He's tough, but uh, living on your toughness ain't going to do you much favors. Women's bantamweight Nora Cornell defeated Jocelyn Edwards in unanimous decision, 230-27 to 29-28. Cornell just better. Um, Edwards kept trying to clinch, would get clinches, didn't do much, would get takedowns, didn't do much, got outstruck on the feet. Cornell was the rightful winner. Um, bantamweight, Freddy Basharat, uh, he beat Cledson Rodriguez without too much difficulty. Arm triangle choke, 4.15 of the first. Um, Rodriguez came out, 
threw a couple of kicks, tried a spinning back kick. Bostrada just played it cool, got him down. Uh, nice passing, good control, pretty decent ground and pound. The passing he did to finish the choke, um, really good stuff. So he's in half guard. He gets the position for the arm triangle and then just wonderfully windshield wipers his legs across. A lot of guys get retied up in half guard on that, trying to pass there. Nah, almost like butter. And doing that, um, so nice finish. Both the Bostrad brothers are pretty good. And kicking everything off, uh, Jacqueline Cavalcanti defeated Zara Firen via unanimous decision. 30-27 across the boards. Uh, Zara Firen is just not very good. And Cavalcanti got a solid win. It existed. All right, your post-fight bonuses. I already mentioned your fight of the night. Uh, Benoit Saint-Denis and Thiago Moises. If not that one, it probably would have been Losa and McKee. But yeah, Saint-Denis and Moises deserve that. Oh, I missed one. My apologies. Uh, light heavyweight on the main card. Skipped right over this. Um, Volkan Uzdemir defeated Bogdan Gushkov. Uh, Gushkov, excuse me, via rear naked choke, 346 of the first. Not much here. Um, Guskov, I don't want to say a total can crusher, but might be one of those guys whose game is centered around being better than regional opposition, but maybe he's not as good as genuine world-class opposition. Um, Uzdemir outstruck him, landed a really nice counter left, actually. Uh, dropped him with punches, got his back, got full mount, got his back again, got the choke. Pretty standard stuff there. Uzdemir just um, showing the UFC debutant that you're not quite ready for top 10 light heavyweights, even though that division is kind of a wasteland. So, uh, good on Uzdemir. Forgot to mention that. My apologies. Uh, so, again, Sandini and Moises was fight of the night. Performances went to Cyril Gan and Morgan Chartier. Fine. There were a lot of ways you could have gone with that. Uh, I'm not complaining about those. So if you want my full report, it's in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Just occurred to me I've been saying that wrong for quite some time. My apologies. Um, not that. Sorry, I'm looking at the next card. Whatever. Uh, give that a read. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's up there. Uh, along with clips of finishes, as long as they're posted on official you, um, official Twitter accounts. Because I, there's other people who do that stuff on Twitter, and fair play to them. I'm just not going to publish that in case things get, you know, weird. So, just how I handle that. If it comes out via one of the official ESPN, ESPN MMA, UFC, they're affiliated. There's a handful of, like, e official... Twitter pages that that is good for. Elsewhere, I don't post them in my coverage. I might retweet them, so follow me on Twitter, WinFreeMMA, if you're interested. All right, uh, so, yeah. This coming Saturday, though, we are in... I've been calling it UFC 296. It's 293. I am... I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe it was just me for the... Maybe it was me recently. But UFC 293... We'll be coming our way from the Kudos Bank Arena in Sydney, Australia. Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, technically. And I already mentioned, this is not an especially strong card. Um, 
Main event. Middleweight title fight. Um, champion. Newly crowned champion. Uh, first ever two-time champion in middleweight history in the UFC. No one else had regained the belt after losing it. Because um, you had... Murillo Bustamante, who dropped the belt and went to Pride. I think it was Bustamante. Then Evan Tanner won it. Then he got smashed by Rich Franklin, who held it for a little bit. Then he got smashed by Anderson Silva, who held it forever. Then Weidman. Weidman lost to Rockhold. Rockhold lost to Bisbing. We get a little break here because Bisbing lost to GSP, while Whitaker won the interim belt. Whitaker was promoted to full champion. Whitaker lost to Adesanya. Then Adesanya had it until he lost to Pereira. And yeah, Adesanya, first guy in UFC history to regain the middleweight title. He's kicking off his second title reign with a fight against Sean Strickland. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Sean Strickland has zero chance of winning this fight. I think that would be unfair. I don't think he has no chance. I just don't like his chances. He's got decent pressure if he wants to apply it. He's got a pretty good jab. He's just got some defensive things that work pretty well. Somewhere between pretty well and actually really well against most MMA strikers that will fall that fall apart against very sophisticated strikers. Alex Pereira knocked him out um, because he kind of reaches to parry punches. So he faked the jab. Strickland reached, and instead of throwing the jab, he threw the left hook and just blap. Um, I Adesanya doesn't have the same, you know, left hook, one-punch power that Alex Pereira does, but he also doesn't necessarily need it to be able to exploit some of those. Strickland's footwork is a little bit weird. He brings his feet together. Not as often as he used to, but he still does. Um, I'm not going to pretend that Strickland is incapable of winning this fight. He's not. If he can push a really high pace, if he can get the jab going effectively and avoid the counters, if he can close distance, maybe drag Adesanya down, I find that less likely. Or if he can get Adesanya out of his comfort zone and into more of a brawl. Even then, Adesanya in the pocket's actually pretty good. It's one of the areas he identified as having a good advantage over Robert Whitaker. Was just, okay, get close, get in the pocket, make it a gunfight. He's not as comfortable here as I am. That played out in their first fight. I... I just don't have a good reason to pick against Israel Adesanya here. Strickland doesn't... He's got good volume, but he doesn't have a tremendous amount of power. And I think power is one of the things you need if you're going to fight Adesanya, believe it or not. You need decent volume, too. If you try to just one-shot him the whole time, that's not really going to work out. But part of the equation, I think, to getting to him is power. Um, Strickland's not much of a kicker. That's another thing I think you kind of need. I don't think Str- One of the big ways to dealing with Adesanya is stopping his leg kicks. He uses those to score, to disrupt, to range find. And 
some of the guys who have had success against him dealt with those in one way or another. Um, Jan Blachowicz checked the vast majority of them. Pereira would either check or throw back, uh, both of which were somewhat effective deterrents. Uh, I don't know how Strickland's going to deal with that. We'll have to see. I just... I don't have a compelling reason to pick against Adesanya, which is not to say that Strickland is utterly helpless here. It might play out that he is, but I'm not going to do him the disservice of pretending that he is just, that he is some scrub out here just to be a glorified heavy bag. Adesanya might still treat him that way when when it's all said and done, but Strickland's a better fighter than that, and I'm not going to do him the disservice of pretending that, you know, he's some bum. Because he's not that. I just think this is a bad matchup for him. <laughs> so, going with Adesanya. Co-main event. Heavyweight. Tai Tuivasa and Alexander Volkov. This is a tall order for Tuivasa, and not just because Volkov is very big. Tuivas is 6'2", Volkov is 6'7". Volkov's a big boy. Tuivas will probably weigh more, but Volkov's good. Volkov's not just tall and long, he's good about fighting long. He's actually a pretty good pocket fighter, too. If you do happen to get in close, we can actually fight at different ranges. Tuivas has got the power to end this if he's able to connect and... He's another one of those guys. I'm not going to do the disservice of saying he can't win. If he's intelligent and he can get in and land, he can win. But I just like Volkov's chances a lot better. Um, Volkov's one of those guys who's been on the verge of the title scene a few different times, and he's stumbled. The loss to Curtis Blade, I mean... Dude, he was beating up Derek Lewis before he got caught with that kind of uh, those last punches at the end of the third. Then the Blades loss hurt, even though he turned in an admirable effort down the stretch. Then he lost to Gon. Then he kind of got run over by Aspinall. He seems to have rebounded well enough from that with the wins over Rosenstroik and, El- and Vol- uh, Romanov. Excuse me, Alexander Romanov. Both of those first-round stoppages, if he's really on a tear... He's got good front kicks. Those have troubled Tuivasa in the past. He does good body work. That's bothered Tuivasa. Uh, he's smart enough not to get backed into the... F- yeah, I, again, I'm just picking Volkov. Tuivasa winning is not going to shock me. But I feel comfortable picking Volkov. Uh, let's see. Flyweight. Manel Kopp and Felipe Dos Santos. So Kopp was supposed to fight Kai Carter-France here. Carter-France had to pull out with the after he suffered a concussion. Manel Kopp, um, current frontrunner for the 2023 Ian McCall Memorial Worst Luck in MMA Award. Um, now fighting, again, Felipe Dos Santos. So Kopp was last in action December of 22, and he's had, what, three or four fights fallout since then? I'm going to look this up specifically because it's a little bit crazy. Hang on, where are you? There you are. Um, yeah, so, in 2022, he had two fights fall out with Sumudarji and Rogerio Bontarin. Um, in 2023, fights with Alex Perez, 
unfortunate. Would have been a good fight. Davis and Figueredo would have been a great fight, but Figueredo, that was the one where a bit out. He went, yeah, flyweight ain't happening again. And then the Kai Kara France fight. So something weird happens even in this fight. He he might lock it up. Um, I'm I don't know how I would have gone between Cop and. Cara France. That's a much tougher fight to pick. Look, Felipe Dos Santos, he's only 7-0. Guys coming into the UFC that junior in their career, it's always a little leery for me. Um, yeah, he's 7-0 with one no contest. He's been out of action f since November of last year. A couple of fights fall out, but, yeah, man. Yeah, cop. That's a fairly easy pick in that, as far as picking goes. Back to heavyweight, because we must be... Dude, this frickin' main card is two heavyweights and a light heavyweight fight on it. Just, God. Uh, so, Justin Toffa will be fighting Austin Lane. This is... Uh, these two had uh, their previous fight they fought um, earlier in June and had a no contest after 23 seconds. Well, I'm not even mad about it. Like, um, Toffa got poked in the eye and it was pretty bad. He couldn't continue. If you can't continue, you can't continue. Um, so we're rematching here. I, I don't have a problem picking Toffa. I mean, he's not great, but... Actually, Lane's not terrible. I'm still picking Toffa, but I'm not going to be shocked if Lane pulls that out. Then at light heavyweight, we have Tyson Pedro and Anton Turcali. Tyson Pedro, one of those really weird guys. So, he should have beat Ovin St. Preux. Made a couple of stupid decisions. And got himself submitted. He should have beat Shogun. Uh, in fact, he was ahead on that card and then got stopped down the stretch in the third round. He takes four years off. Or three and change. Comes back, beats Ike Villanueva, beats Harry Hunsucker, then loses to Modestus Pekowskis. Pedro has a lot of very good skills. He cannot, for the life of him, seem to string them together. He should beat Anton Turcali. Um, Turcali is 8-2. What, 1-1 one one in the UFC? 0-2 oh, in the UFC. Okay, he lost to Gileton Almeida. Fair play. Almeida's very good. Uh, Vitor Petrino, though. And this is kind of a setup for old Tyson Pedro. So, picking him to win. All right, that's your main card. It's not a strong pay-per-view card. It'll probably be fun enough, but that's not a strong card. Prelims, light heavyweight. Carlos Ulborg will fight Da Eun Jung. That's not a bad fight. Um, here's the problem. Carlos Ulborg is actually kind of good. Jung's not a bad fighter, but his last two fights have been rough. I mean, I liked, I, I really liked his win over Kennedy uh, and Zechiku. Beautiful elbows to get that finish. Um, he's had some good performances. He got knocked out by uh, Dustin Jacoby. That was rough. And he kind of got um, out-clinched and sort of out-wrestled by Devin Clark. 
that's not good. Olberg, still a little junior in his career. Um, I mean, he had a longer kickboxing career, but he's only eight. He only has eight, sorry, nine professional fights. He's eight and one. But he's on a four-fight winning streak. The last three have been first-round finishes. I don't have a problem picking him here. But Jung might test him in a few ways that his last couple of opponents haven't been able to. So, see how that plays. Featherweights, Jack Jenkins and Chippe Mariscal. Um... Remember Mariscal? He pulled off that uh, that win over Trevor Peak. That was just, dude. That fight with Trevor Peak was like the best 15-minute parking lot fight you'll find. Um, Jenkins, yeah, far. Um, 12 and two. When is UFC debut? Two and zero in the UFC actually, over Don Sheamus and Jamal Emmers. That's a pretty good fight. Uh, this is featherweight, yes, yeah, because Mariscal fought up at lightweight for that fight and. He's, he was clearly a natural featherweight. Curious to see what Mariscal can do. Um, I, there's some of what he did with uh, how he handled Peak that I thought was relatively impressive. Because, dude, fighting some of those wild men that are just hard-headed, hard-charging, and don't stop, y- there's a degree of sophistication and experience you need to handle guys like that. Even when they're not good, they can kind of just brute force their way to success. And he handled Peak fairly well. I don't have a pro- I don't have a problem leaning towards Jenkins here, but if you're looking for I'm actually kind of interested in that one. Uh, lightweight Jamie Malarkey and John McDessie, I'm sure that'll be fun enough. Um, Malarkey coming off a loss to Muhammad Naimov. McDessie will probably... These two are going to fight each other. They're going to go along with how each other likes to fight. Um, I'm going to go with Malarkey there. I don't have a lot of faith picking McDessie at this point. Also lightweight Nasrat Hakparas and Landon, uh, Landon Quinones. Uh, Mr. Hakparas, coming off a win over John McDessie. He lost two in a row. I mean, Dan Hooker, Bobby Green. Like, pretty good guys. Drew Dober stopped him. Where's UFC losses? Marcin Held, Drew Dober, Dan Hooker, Bobby Green. Respectable. Um, Quinones, I believe this is his UFC debut. He is 7-1-1. One, one. Yeah, UFC debut. Um, he took place in this last season of The Ultimate Fighter, I guess. Um... Which I don't care about because the Ultimate Fighter sucks. Yeah, I'm picking Hakparast. I need a reason to. P- uh, the there's a pretty marked difference in experience here. Kinyonyas might pull something out, but Hakparast is the much more proven commodity. Uh, welterweight Mike Mathitha and Charlie Radke. Here. Oh, Blood Diamond, Mike Matheva. Yeah. He's only three and two. He's 0 and two in the UFC. Lost to Jeremiah Wells and Orion Kosi. This might be winner go home for him. Radke is seven and three overall, making his UFC debut. I can't pick Blood Diamond. I'm sorry, I can't do it. If he 
he might win this one, but if he can't win this one, another one of those guys who just got to the UFC way too early. Came into the UFC at 3-0. and I can count on one hand the number of guys who have done that successfully in the last, like, 15 to 20 years. It's just, it's hard. It's, UFC is not the place to learn how to fight MMA. It's just not, again, there's some, there's some freaks out there that can do it in certain divisions. Mostly it's heavyweights. Because, um, Ken Velasquez came in at 3-0, and I think. And then Brock came in at 1-0, and but we're talking, again, freak athletes in a historically weak division. Uh, featherweight Shane Young and Gabriel Miranda. Uh, Shane Young lost his last three. Ludovic Klein head kicked him. Omar Morales and then Blake Builder. Um, he might be in winner go home territory here. Uh, Miranda, 16 and six. His profile picture on Tapology has a very stylish mustache. Fights out of MMA Masters, lost his UFC debut. Oh, yeah, he fought Benoit Saint-Denis. That's turning out. That loss might age fairly well. Who else has losses recently? Eh. Had a pretty good streak. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to go with Miranda here. I, I, I hate to discount Shane Young, but I don't know. He might be past it. Then kicking everything off, we're back at welterweight for Kevin Jusay and Kiefer Crosby. That's either Jusay or, jo- or like, Josette. Where's he from? France? Okay, uh, yeah, so Jusay. Yeah, that's France. He is 8-2, uh, making his UFC debut, three-fight winning streak. Anybody I recognize here? Well, one of his losses to Jack Della Maddalena, so that's not a bad loss. I mean, it's not no fun to lose, but that guy's real good. Uh, Crosby is Irish. Ten and three. Uh, making his UFC debut. Two fight winning streak. Who are his losses? Um, okay, what are some names? Coming off a win over Cowboy Alex Oliveira. Uh, losses to Georgi Karakanian in Bellator. Karakanian ran him over. I looked up that fight, actually. Lost to Mike Jackson. Not that one. Um, that was a DQ via an illegal knee, so he need the guy illegally. Again, not weird MMA journalist Mike Jackson. There names on here I recognize? No. Um, let me go as you say there. Not sold on that, but why not? I'm I don't know enough about either guy to really make a uh, to have a strong feeling one way or the other there. Um, what else did we lose from this fight? Yeah, they were rumored to do Adesanya and uh, Drikas Duplessis. That fizzled, obviously. Um, DDP has some injuries. He's healing up. Uh, we lost Viviani Arujo and Casey O'Neill. That would have been a decent fight. Anyway, 
that's the card. Again, not a terribly strong pay-per-view. Um, they better hope nothing happens to that main event, man. If something happens to either of those fighters, this is not worth paying money for. Just straight up, not worth money. But Saturday, I'll be covering it in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Per usual, stop by, say hello. I always appreciate all of you good people who do so. All right. Uh, let's hit some news really quickly. So there's still persistent rumors about Ronda Rousey looking to return to the UFC. You've got UFC 300 coming up. Dana White's denying it, but Dana White's word means nothing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. They don't... The UFC doesn't need people with star power the way they used to. It's nice to have it. It's not necessary anymore. Rousey's been out of the game for a while. Dana denying it makes me think there's actual smoke there. Like, it might be more likely than we think. Um, I don't know, though. I don't know. Um, but UFC 300 is coming up. And here's the only thing I really want on that card. I want Jim Miller on that card in a in an appropriate, winnable fight. That's really all I want. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of... Um, pro wrestlers who might be returning to the UFC, or who now have the option. I'm not going to touch on this any more than to say the following, because this is an MMA podcast, and I don't, I don't mind talking boxing and other and other combat sports. I don't talk a lot of pro wrestling here in the weeds. I occasionally mention that I cover it. But um, very recently, CM Punk was fired from AEW. Um. And you know what? I'm just going to throw this out there. If Jim Miller can fight CM Punk at UFC 300, I will be a happy man. (laughs) It's not fair. It's an utterly uncompetitive fight. I am well aware of that. But I love Jim Miller. And seeing him get a relatively high-profile win, because Punk still has something of a name... As he winds down his career at UFC 300, like, yeah, give my man an easy win. (laughs) I'll, (laughs) I don't know. They could do it at 170. Miller's fought there before. But look, UFC 300 is coming up. The UFC is going to try and do something somewhat special there. Rousey's return is not, I imagine it's not wholly off the table. Certainly not to the extent that the UFC seems to be claiming. She might still not be there. Again, there might be nothing to this in the general sense, but when the UFC pushes back against something this hard, it tends to make me think that there's a little bit more there than they like to admit. So maybe they can't come to terms financially. Maybe Ronda's not all that interested. I don't know. Maybe the UFC is not interested at this point. I have a harder time believing that, but it's not wholly outside the realm of possibility. So. We'll keep you updated on that as it as more information becomes available, because yeah, Ronda's WWE contract is about up, and WWE and UFC are about to merge anyway, so who knows. All right, uh, moving on. 
We have a main event for a fight night card, November 18th. Brendan Allen and Paul Craig, middleweights. Fine enough fight night main event. Um, there's a that probably doesn't go all five rounds. Neither the way those two match up, like I'm not saying first round, but I doubt we'll see the judges that night for that fight. Um, yeah, I, I think the last thing I wanted to touch on here. Uh, I'm only going to talk about this because it kind of. It gained a little bit of traction throughout the week and it dissipated fairly quickly because I don't think there's much to this talking point. But what the heck? I'll talk about it. Um, so Demetrius Johnson was doing a stream because he streams on YouTube fairly regularly and is paid fairly well for it. And the topic of, you know, what's more difficult kind of came up in a roundabout way. And he said that MMA is the easiest combat sport to win a world title in. And he explained himself, and I don't think he's wrong. But, you know, MMA fans get a little bit touchy when you say something like that, and they don't like... Here's the thing about his point, if you listen to him, because people did the following. Well, but there's, you know, a million world titles in boxing and kickboxing and what... Okay, so... Let's let's do two things here. Let's do the following. One, let's all admit too many too many belts in various other combat sports, okay? Let's all acknowledge that. However, let's do there are four in boxing. There are four recognized Major world titles in boxing. It's the WBO, WBC, IBF, and I think the IBA. I can never remember all of them. I can, I, there's like three that I'm always confident on, and I can never remember the fourth, but whatever. There's four. You see guys with like eight belts or whatnot? No, no, no. Only four of those matter. Occasionally, you can argue the ring belt matters, but that's the ring magazine belt, and... Eh, set aside. There's four. The rest of them don't matter. There's four. Okay? In kickboxing, there's two or three. I tend to say, I think three. I can never remember the third organization. But for the sake of argument, let's just say there's three. Okay? How many world titles are there in MMA? If your only if your response to this is well there's only the UFC get out. There are three serious world titles in MMA and you could make an argument for a fourth. So there's the UFC title. There's the Bellator title, which in some cases I think Bellator has the best fighters in certain divisions. And there's the one champions. And those were, my opinion, those are the three majors. And you can argue for either, you could argue for one of the following. You could argue for PFL. You could argue for KSW. You could argue for, what, maybe ACA? 
I mean, there's other, there's other prestigious, smaller, more like regional titles that are lead to the UFC, like, you know, um, C, what is it, CFFC, then um, uh, Cage Warriors. Like, there's several of those guys that are like very good promotions. But I wouldn't necessarily call what they have, you know, again, like major world titles. They're very, very valuable regional titles. But, you know, Somewhere that you can argue for a fourth somewhere in the PFL KSW, um, again ACA M1. There's usually another one from some of these organizations out there that's floating around that um, at any given point in time could be the fourth. Now these are not equal. I don't pretend that they're equal, but those are the three major world titles in the weight classes in MMA. So Demetrius's point was you can be a world champion in MMA and still have pretty big gaps in your game. Whereas if you're boxing, you have to be a good boxer to win a world title. It's unbelievably rare that you get people who are bad boxers carrying world titles in boxing. I think the only one recently, and even this, I'm, Deontay Wilder gets a bad rep. He is not the most technically proficient boxer. But to say that he is straight up bad at it, or, you know, remedial, I think is a disservice to him. You want to be a world champion kickboxer. So again, pick the two or three recognized, proven promotions or world titles. You can't be a decent, you, you can't only, you, you, like, you have to be a really good kickboxer. And you can vary that a little bit. Do you lean heavier on the kicking or the punching? How's your clinch game? That depends on the rule set, and that kind of depends on the promotion. But you can't be a you know, pretty good boxer with no kicking. You can't be a good kicker with poor punching. You have to be a really good kickboxer. If you want to be a world champion in MMA, you can be Alex Pereira. Dude was a world champion and has no ground game. Maybe can stop a couple of double legs, and he's and to Pereira's credit, I'm not trying to diss the guy. He's worked really hard on it, but he doesn't have much of a ground game to speak of. He's exceptional kickboxer, and as long as he can bring his strength to bear against your weakness, he can be successful and a world champion in MMA. There are some guys who have. There have been champions in the past in MMA who are piss-poor strikers. And yet, their ground game was lights out, and that took them to a belt. You can do this in MMA. You can't go into boxing and be a bad boxer and become a world champion. The specificity of skill makes it matter so much more. This is one of the things about boxing, man. Everything is refined. The more refined and the more narrow your skill set, the more the little differences manifest. And that's what boxing is. 
the slightest variability, the slightest difference in your skill versus the other guy manifests itself in some pretty big ways because we're kind of doing a... We're kind of doing a statistical analysis thing here, which is a weird way to phrase this, but hear me out. If you look at wide um, swaths of statistical analysis, you can draw conclusions, but there's variability. That's a little bit like MMA. Wide range of skills, wide range of data to deal with. Variability results. The more specific or the more we shift along the data, if we're, again, if we're keeping this metaphor here, the more those small variabilities, the smaller vari variabilities become more important. And in, in boxing, man, if your jab is not dialed in and you lose the jab war, you're going to get screwed. Very few people have been able to pull that one off without a good jab. Even guys who you don't think of traditionally as having a great jab. Um, or, you know, if you watch them without knowing what you're looking at, the jab doesn't feature all that prominently, or it, it doesn't show up on highlight reels. Dude, Roberto Duran's jab would mess you up. If you watch his highlights, it may not necessarily stand out to you unless you've got a more refined eye. Mike Tyson didn't actually have a bad jab. He didn't use, he used it very sparingly because of his style. Still had it. Still knew how to use it for his style. Still an exceptional boxer. It, it just matters so much more that you're good at all the little details because the little details are what define everything when you really get down and narrow into a skill set. And that's what, again, that's what something like boxing is. Even jujitsu. You can't have poor jujitsu and win a major tournament in jujitsu. It's self-evident. Uh, oh, by the way, that same vein, talking about jiu-jitsu, shout out to Demetrius Johnson, who won the IBJJF um, Masters at the brown belt level. Um, kudos to him. Yeah, he. I think that was his first jiu-jitsu tournament. Uh, dude, imagine having to fight that guy. Imagine, imagine you go to a jiu-jitsu tournament, you're a brown belt, you're even a pretty good brown belt. And, okay, who's the first guy in my bracket? Demetrius Johnson. What the hell? <laughs> You might act, you might rightly go like, how is this guy not a black belt? Well, that's up to his instructor. And yeah, he he kind of ran over those people. Um, some stuff though you should take away from that jujitsu guys out there. Look up his matches. He's been he manifested something that I think Craig Jones has been talking about. I think both him and um, Gordon Ryan have touched on the same kind of thing here. Different angles they took on it, but. Uh, I've heard Craig Jones talk about this. There's a lot of jiu-jitsu players who need to look at MMA grappling and apply it more regularly to jiu-jitsu. MMA grappling evolved. Um, in, in some respects, into, MMA grappling was forced to evolve due to some of the considerations for, ju for MMA that don't necessarily exist in jiu-jitsu. That's true. But MMA fighters found ways to get around the positional hierarchy in jiu-jitsu. Uh, any of the previous times I've talked about um, you know, Khabib Nurmagomedov, he 
upended the entire meta of MMA grappling in some respects. Not him alone, but he's the most public-facing element of this. He, especially the later part of his career when he figured out what he liked to do, his skill set and whatnot, and he matured a little bit um, in terms of his skills. And he nuked, almost from orbit, <laughs> the the um, jiu-jitsu positional hierarchy. If you look at his early career, he actually does a fair bit of the traditional stuff. He's passing, he's going, again, full guard, half guard, side control, mount, back mount. That's the positional hierarchy. That's how you like to go through it. He realized, oh, one, this isn't as stable as I'd like it to be all the time. And two, here's a better position. I'm where you can't do much to me and I can beat the crap out of you. So all I have to do is this and I'm good here. And you think I have to keep advancing and I don't. I'm good here. And one of the things Craig Jones... Craig Jones, like, looked at the Dagestani style again, kind of the Khabib meta, is how I refer to it, and went, okay, I we have to be able to deal with this. Because otherwise, like, they're just going to keep smashing all these jujitsu guys, because there's baked-in assumptions that they're not playing by. What are they doing? How are they doing it? What can we learn from it? And credit to Craig Jones, man. Not a lot of people were that humble about it in the, in the jujitsu space. He was. And he came up with a couple of things that he's been working on employing. One of them actually is pinning, which is not the biggest thing in jiu-jitsu. He started putting more of a premium on it, and it actually helped his uh, tournament, like his, his competition, to just be able to pin guys. Not that you get, again, you don't get pins in jiu-jitsu the same way you do in wrestling, but the skill set of securing, pinning you, turns out it's pretty good <laughs> and pretty effective. The other thing he brought up was there's some of these control positions that MMA fighters use that jiu-jitsu guys ignore because it's outside the, the traditional positional hierarchy, and they're super valuable even in pure jiu-jitsu. And Demetrius showed off some of that same philosophy here in his matches. So if you're, again, kind of a grappling nerd or curious about it, go look that up. Uh, and DJ did great. Uh, Won the whole thing. Looked and looked very good. Looked very good. He's just, you know, his MMA career is probably not going to go a whole lot longer. And he's just still doing his martial arts journey thing across a bunch of different disciplines. And, you know, good on him. I, I don't wish anything but the best for that guy. Not one bit. So I just wanted to talk briefly on that because I think he's right that it's easier to find gaps in your opponent or to even have gaps yourself in MMA and still succeed at very, very high levels, including the relevant world title level than it is in other sports because more specific sports means you better be good at that very specific sport and all the little details. And that's... And, and achieving a world title under those conditions is harder than achieving a world title in MMA. I would I've heard it argued and I would agree and make the same argument. Holding a world title in MMA is much more difficult <laughs> because you have to be able to account for all those gaps, for all those strengths. Um which is, you know, why George guys like George Anderson, Demetrius John, like what they've done is 
I'm not saying there's no boxers who have comparable, significant accomplishments. I'm saying I do think that's harder than winning or even retaining titles in boxing. You want to argue about, you know, boxers across multiple weight classes, maybe? That's, again, that's a slightly different story, but at that point, it's still fruit, but we're getting more towards apples and oranges than apples and apples, so... Alright, that's my notes. Let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy's broken at, you know, almost 2 in the morning my time. And if not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Alright, nothing new. So, plugs. Damn You Hollywood is basically off for the month of September. We refer to it over there as September because nothing's coming out. It's a wasteland, folks. It's a wasteland for the movie business. Don't know what to tell you. Uh, used to be other months. Last couple of years, it's been September. That's been the dumping ground slash wasteland. So that's off for a bit, but we will be back soon enough with more movies because that's what we do over there. My usual spate of coverage, uh, MLW stuff on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, UFC event on Saturday. Mentioned already, but I covered AEW's All Out event on pay-per-view, so you can watch, read my report of that if you care. It's up in the MMA zone, or excuse me, the Wrestling Zone of Mania.com. Uh, read, don't read. I appreciate if you do, but if you don't, I completely understand. And yeah, next week we will be back here to review UFC 293, and we will preview 16th. Yeah, sorry. My brain. Oh, right, right, right. 293 is going to be listed as 10th because it's in Australia. But here it'll be the 9th, so whatever. We'll also preview the upcoming event UFC on ESPN Plus 85 slash UFC Fight Night 227 slash Noche UFC. Because it is held on Mexican Independence Day, that is headlined by Alexa Grasso and Valentina Shevchenko rematch. Also there, Kevin Holland and Jack Della Maddalena, that's a good fight. Raul Rosas Jr. tries to rebound after his first loss. They're giving him a bit of a get-well fight. What else is on this card that matters? What can we talk about? What's here? Uh, yeesh. Not much, actually, as I'm looking at it. Um, we were supposed to have a few other fights here. We are supposed to have uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio and Daniel Rodriguez. Rodriguez had a USADA issue, and he's out. Um, we were supposed... We were looking at getting... Um, apparently, Shravkat Rachmanov was going to be on this card. Yeah, you're supposed to fight Kelvin Gastelum. Gastelum withdrew after he broke part of his face. Um, he had the nose break. No one is yet currently listed to fight either of those gentlemen. That would have padded this card out nicely. Um, yeah, what else is on here that I... Eh, yeah, it, it is not good, guys. I tell the truth I tell the truth as I see it. Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right, but you always get me unfiltered. So, we'll preview it next week. All right. Until then, thank you as always. Appreciate all of you for listening. Stay safe out there. See you next week and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.